DW Inside Europe. Hello and welcome. I'm Nick Martin in Germany. On today's program, brutal and degrading how Ukrainians have described Russian filtration camps. Too soon to return. Erdogan vows to send home Syrian refugees in Turkey. I don't think about going back to Syria because they destroyed our house in Damascus and the situation is very bad there. I'm a single mother with four children. How can I rebuild my house? And while topless bathing doesn't cause a stir in France, bikinis do. Those stories and more coming up on the programme. Ukraine says thousands of residents of Mariupol have been sent to filtration camps set up by the Kremlin after Russia captured the city earlier this month. Reports have emerged of people being subject to harsh interrogations and sometimes beaten and tortured. Some Ukrainians are then forcibly moved into Russia and some even taken to remote parts of the country, including Siberia, the North Caucasus and the Far East. Mariupol, a port city in southeastern Ukraine, had already experienced the worst of Russia's military assault, having been besieged by Moscow's forces for several weeks. For more, I spoke to Mykola Osichenko, the owner of Mariupolsko TV, whose studios and transmitter were destroyed by the Russians early on in the invasion. I asked him what local residents have told him about what they experienced at the camps. I'm speaking with people who was in uh, the filtration camps. They are telling me the terrible things. One guy, I spoke with him two days ago, he took his wife his two-year-old child and his mother. Uh, he deleted everything uh, from the phone. He came to the um, room with Russians. They connected the phone to their computer and on the big uh, monitor he saw that they restored everything. They found a messages with the blooded uh, Putin and they told this guy and his wife that uh, they are a Nazi and they will took out the children and this guy with his wife will go to prison. They beat him by legs, on the head, on the body, so on, so on, so on. And then when he stand up, somebody from his uh, back used uh, electroshock. The must terrible things we wouldn't know because I think the most terrible things happened with the people which are not alive anymore. And do you have any idea how many people have gone through the filtration camps so far? Look Nick, I think something uh, about from the start of April everybody who wanna leave the Mariupol or who wanna live in Mariupol must uh, came through these camps. I have a guy from my TV station. Uh, Russians uh, came to their house in Mariupol. They took out from the house this guy and his uh, father. And uh, today I spoke with the wife of this, of this guy. Uh, the wife uh, came through the filtration camp. She have the paper that she was there. She have it. But uh, for months, 
her uh, husband and uh, the father is in a camp so um, very many of uh, men come to filtration camps and uh, stay there now of course the kremlin has used filtration camps before both during the chechen wars and the soviet era but can you tell us what their main purpose is this time you know i think the russians are very angry because uh, when they started the war i think putin thought that everybody in mariupol will came out on the streets and uh, take the flowers and uh, meet these um, russians yeah but nobody was glad to see them nobody was meeting them everybody knew that the russians are destroyed uh, our city and i think uh, the russians want to solve the problems with the um, patriotic guys in uh, mariupol yeah they need to clean up people who loves uh, ukraine yeah they need in mariupol only uh, people who loves russia yeah and i think the people for now must lie to their love uh, russia they love chechnya and so on yeah so if uh, people want to live they will tell it yeah okay so they're trying to impose a loyalty to russia there but who are they targeting who are they singling out for punishment they are trying to find uh, the several types of people military guys azov guys uh, cops and so on yeah so it's uh, one type of uh, people second type of people it's journalists it's people like me yeah and i'm actually understand that uh, if i can't escape the mariupol in 15th of march i wouldn't have a chance uh, some days later the guys on uh, russians check uh, points from the mariupol to zaporizhia it was something about 20 or 25 checkpoints already had uh, computers and bases of the people with the cops with the journalists with the government guys and so on the third type of people uh, which they are trying to find by the filtration camps it's the businessmen so it's the people with money they know that in ukraine there is uh, some people who can give uh, some money for this man or this woman and i was talking there to mikola osichenko the owner of mariupolsko tv Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has announced a plan to return one million Syrian refugees. A growing wave of anti-refugee sentiment, fueled by sky-high inflation, is seen as the motivation behind the new policy. A fringe politician has been espousing negative views and has garnered a powerful social media presence, even extending to a short film depicting Turkey overrun by Arabs. With Erdogan lagging in the polls ahead of next year's election and the main opposition pledging to return refugees, the presence of over 4 million Syrians is seen as an electoral liability and a potential cause of nationwide social unrest, while refugee groups warn of the risk of a new exodus of refugees to Europe. Dorian Jones has more from Istanbul. Sivil toplum kuruluşlarımızın kıymetli temsilcileri, değerli kardeşlerim, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan announcing that one million refugees will return home to Syria. 
He says in return, Turkey will build 100,000 homes there, offering the promise of a new life. But for Syrians like Samira, who fled to Turkey three years ago, the idea of returning is out of the question. I don't think about going back to Syria because they destroyed our house in Damascus and the situation is very bad there. I'm a single mother with four children. How can I rebuild my house? The situation there is so difficult. Here in Turkey, it's safer and better for us. Inshallah, if the situation in Syria or in Damascus gets better, I will think about going back. Erdogan insists Ankara plans to return refugees to an area under the control of the Turkish military and Syrian rebels and outside the grasp of Damascus's forces. Turkish forces are amassing on the Syrian border ahead of another operation to expand the territory under Ankara's control in Syria. The planned offensive is targeting Syrian Kurdish groups. Backed by America, they help defeat Islamic State but are deemed terrorists by Ankara. The operation is also designed to provide more space for returning refugees. Given public hostility, Erdogan is under pressure to start returning even more of the estimated 4 million Syrians in Turkey. Pollster Jan Selçuki says surveys indicate people's patience has run out. The 61% that agrees or definitely agrees with the fact that a more tougher stance should be taken towards uh, Syrian refugees uh, stems directly from the negative news that we are seeing that connects Syrian refugees with crime. You know, we don't talk about Syrian entrepreneurs that establish connections between the wider Arab world and Turkey. You know, we don't talk about the young kid who he got the highest point in high school entrance exam last year, who was of Syrian uh, origin. You know, the influx of the Syrian refugees were very poorly uh, managed. And on the back of this economic downturn, I think the Syrian refugee or the refugee issue becomes a more a heated uh, issue where emotions tend to get out of hand. Last year, angry mobs attacked a district in the capital, Ankara, where many Syrian refugees lived. Such attacks are becoming increasingly common as tensions rise amid triple-digit inflation. This video depicting a dystopian Turkey where Arabs run the country and the protagonist fails to enter medical school because he doesn't speak Arabic went viral across social media. It's part of a campaign by the Zafa or Victory Party, whose virulent anti-refugee platform has seen it surge from obscurity to the political mainstream. Most of the main parties are now calling for refugees to return, which is now predicted to be a key issue in next year's presidential elections. <laughs> Turkish security forces are now routinely rounding up and deporting what they claim are illegal migrants. While Erdogan insists Syrian refugees won't be forced to return, the authorities are increasingly tightening controls restricting where they can live. Pressures that will likely grow with looming elections and Erdogan lagging far behind in the polls. Omer Kaka is an expert on displaced people for Tepev, an Ankara-based economic research foundation. Kaka warns that rather than returning to Syria, 
refugees will likely look to Europe, whatever the risks of getting there. If they feel that they are left between a rock and, and, and a hard place, and especially knowing that they do not want to go back to Syria, moving westward might be the only option available for Syrians to live in a place where like, they can actually have some sort of prosperity and um, safety for themselves and for the children in the future. Earlier this month, the Greek Coast Guard intercepted 500 migrants on one day, making the perilous journey from Turkey. Summer is usually the high season for migrant crossings into Greece, which are now expected to surge. The 4 million Syrian refugees here are trapped in an increasingly political, toxic atmosphere that can only deepen with approaching poles and growing economic pain. And the lure of Europe, however unwelcoming, may be the only way out for them. Dorian Jones, DW, Istanbul. And I'm Nick Martin in Germany. You're listening to Inside Europe. Czech police have begun the prosecution of a communist-era interior minister over the shooting of people trying to escape across Czechoslovakia's borders before 1989. The man is 81, and it's well over 30 years since the fall of communism. And yet virtually no one has been sentenced over the many crimes committed during four decades of totalitarian rule. This case marks one of the last chances to bring senior people to justice. From Prague... Rob Cameron has more. A communist propaganda film from the late 1980s trying to show the softer side of Czechoslovakia's feared border guard service. Here, people always come first, explains the narrator, saying the young men who join the service have to learn to cope with working in rain, sun or sub-zero temperatures, but thanks to their commander's sensitive approach, grow from boys into men. There was little sympathy, however, for those caught trying to cross the border illegally, with many killed or injured for the crime of attempting to leave the socialist paradise without permission. Peter Rendek is the managing director of the Prague-based Platform of European Memory and Conscience, the organization which filed the criminal complaint. It uh, should be more than 280 people who are killed by electricity, by mines, uh, shooting and uh, dogs. But, uh, of course, in the, in the numbers, all those people who were heavily wounded, there is no statistics. Uh, mostly Czechoslovaks, Czech, Slovaks, Poles and East German were trying to, uh, to uh, escape. It was innocent civilians, were people who were trying to merge with their families or they didn't uh, you know, follow the communist rules or uh, were not criminals but were against the official policy. They wanted to, to, to live in democracies. So a lot of young people, innocent civilians, unarmed people were trying to escape illegally. 
Officers from the special police unit set up to prosecute crimes committed by Czechoslovakia's communist regime have launched proceedings against the man formerly in charge of those border guards, 81-year-old former Federal Interior Minister František Kincel, who served in the position in the late 1980s. They say he committed the crime of abuse of office by failing to stop officers from opening fire on people crossing the border, even though they did not pose any threat to life or limb. But what sense is there in prosecuting an elderly man more than 30 years after the event? Jakub Svierak is the spokesman for an organization called Dekommunizace, which campaigns against the continued presence of the Communist Party as a political force in the Czech Republic. Basically, the point is very simple. I think it is to, to actually say loudly what is right and what is wrong, and nobody wants to sentence Mr. Kinsel to go to the jail. Uh, we would like just to have a proper trial and the sentence should say this was bad and it shouldn't happen again. That's it. Because Mr. Kinsel was the member of the communist regime and I don't see big difference between the Nazi regime and the communist regime actually. And if you have a look on the Germans, they were dealing with their history, with their past uh, very profoundly and I think that they had done excellent job and their society is now healthy. And I think that uh, we have still in Czech Republic a lot of to do in this, in uh, in this perspective because we have to deal with the history, and that's actually actually is the reason why I think that uh, Mr. Kinsel should be sentenced. Jakub's organization has had some success. Last year, for the first time since 1989, the successor Communist Party of Bohemia and Moravia failed to get into Parliament, and it now looks like it's truly heading for the history books. And with just a handful of senior officials from Czechoslovakia's communist regime still alive, and with a tiny number of successful prosecutions so far, time is running out to bring those responsible for the regime's crimes to justice. Rob Cameron, DW, Prague. As the summer weather hits France, a long-simmering controversy is resurfacing over the bikini, the head-to-toe swimsuit favoured by some Muslim women, but banned in most of the country's public pools. The French government aims to overturn a new ruling in the southeastern city of Grenoble, allowing the garment. And it won a first victory this week when an administrative court suspended the bikini measure. The city's mayor is appealing. Other municipalities are lining up on either side of the bikini debate, as Lisa Bryant reports from Paris. Like most pools in France, this one in northern Paris has a strict dress code. Caps and classic swimsuits for men and women are mandatory. This is not the place for bold fashion statements. But the southern Alpine city of Grenoble has loosened up. A newly passed measure now allows women to swim topless and also completely covered up. Interviewed by French radio, Grenoble's green mayor Eric Piolle says it's a matter of basic rights. We need to lift these clothing bans to offer universal access to a public service. That's both true for topless women and for health, philosophical, political or religious convictions. The pool is like the street. You should be able to dress as you like. 
allowing topless women in the city's pools hasn't drawn much outcry. The body covering bikini is different. The Conservative Regional Council has suspended subsidies to Grenoble. Interior Minister Gérald is challenging the new swimming rules in court, calling them an unacceptable provocation. Grenoble's former conservative mayor, Alain Carignot, agrees, telling French media that Piaud's ruling undermines gender equality and favors political Islam. Since the ruling, a few towns have issued new anti-Burkini measures. Behind Grenoble's Burkini push is a national group called Citizens Alliance. It's made up of men and women of different backgrounds and religious beliefs, fighting against discrimination. Sana Souid is co-president. She also heads a Muslim women's union in another French city. On essaye de we're trying to push back the boundaries. We expected criticism and debate on the Burkini measure. That's normal. But we didn't expect it would take on these dimensions. This is not the first time burkinis have caused a splash. They were banned in Massey beaches a few years ago until a French court overturned the move, judging it discriminatory. Burkini pool bans are different. They're supposedly based on hygiene concerns, but they fit into a hot debate over France's 1905 law separating religion and state and simmering fears of political Islam. France bans headscarves and other so-called conspicuous religious signs in public schools and for public servants on grounds they clash with the country's secular values. The face-covering niqab is banned in all public spaces. In France, the people become hysteric, not only uh, with bikini, but also with a hijab, with a normal veil. Everything is uh, appearing as a Muslim sign, provoke a bad reaction among the public. Agnes DeFeo is a French sociologist and author of Behind the Niqab, a book exploring why women have chosen the full Islamic veil. She says French attitudes toward the veil stretch back to colonial times. All the French, they see uh, the veil as something background, uh, old-fashioned. But it's not, uh, it's not the reality because now most of the young women, young Muslim women, they want to wear the, the veil and the burkini. For these women, DeFeo says, the veil is a form of rebellion and identity. A recent poll found most French oppose burkinis in public pools. But leaving the northern Paris pool, one swimmer, Marie, said she didn't care how people dressed. Everyone should be free to wear what they want. So long as it's not imposed on me, it's not a problem. That also seems to be the attitude in the Brittany city of Rennes. A few years ago, local authorities quietly changed pool rules, allowing all kinds of swimsuits, including burkinis. The initial furor soon died down. Now, of the thousands swimming in Hen public pools each year, local government says just a few wear burkinis. Lisa Bryant, DW, Paris. And don't forget to subscribe to this show on your podcast platform. And we'd love it if you would leave a review for our show too, as it helps other people to find us. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin. 
in Germany. This is Inside Europe, and I'm Nick Martin in Germany. In the next half hour, England's dental deserts, why millions of people can't get their teeth checked. On the Luther Trail, but is the German theologian still relevant 500 years after his translation of the New Testament? He's laying down his uh, principles for translation. There he says you have to talk like the woman in the house, like the children on the street, like the men in the market. He had a good feeling for language, for the German language. And release the insects. There's a new sustainable source of protein for our plates. From the studios of Germany's international broadcaster, DW, this is Inside Europe. The former monarch of Spain, Juan Carlos I, has once again hit the headlines. The 84-year-old left Spain under a cloud of controversy and has been in self-imposed exile in the United Arab Emirates for the last two years. But he was back in the country last weekend and also paid a visit to his son, King Felipe VI. Juan Carlos was embroiled in a string of financial scandals that not only damaged his reputation but that of the Spanish monarchy. From Madrid, Ashish Sharma reports. A frail old man delicately climbed down the stairs of his private jet into the warm embrace of his daughter he hadn't seen in almost two years. Not quite the family reunion that Spaniards had wanted to see. Juan Carlos's first visit to Spain since 2020 was at the invitation of Pedro Campos, the president of the Sanexo Yacht Club in Galicia, where he took part in a sailing regatta. He ended his visit by meeting his son King Felipe VI in Madrid on Monday. Juan Carlos was revered as the man that stepped out of the darkness to lead Spain into a new democratic era following the death of the Spanish dictator General Franco in 1975. But he abdicated in 2014 as a series of damning financial scandals unravelled around him. These included an unexplained 65 million euros payment by the Saudi Arabian government, allegations of tax fraud and the non-declaration of alleged gifts which he received as the head of state. As these allegations took place while he was the king, Juan Carlos was protected from prosecution. While some supported his return, many others spoke against his visit. Isabel Rodriguez, the spokesperson for the Spanish government, described his trip as a wasted opportunity to give an explanation and to apologise to the Spanish public. When asked by a reporter whether he would clarify things with his son at their meeting on Monday, Juan Carlos responded by saying, Explanations, what about? Ashish Sharma, DW, Madrid. 
The UK's National Health Service is at breaking point after the COVID-19 pandemic left more than 6 million people waiting for surgery and other medical interventions. A report published earlier this month found that the country's publicly funded dental system isn't doing much better. Last year alone, more than 2,000 dentists quit the profession and there were not enough new recruits to take up the slack. The report described how because of decades of underfunding, dental deserts have emerged across England where people simply can't get access to treatment. And that's left more than 4 million people without a dentist. Neil Carmichael, the chair of the UK's Association of Dental Groups, joins us now. Neil, we're hearing of people waiting three years to see a dentist and forced to visit emergency rooms to get treatment. So just how bad is the situation in the UK now? We measure these in millions in terms of the number of patients that have just simply not been to a dentist uh, for a a year or two. So um, you're absolutely right. The situation is desperate because we first of all got about 40 areas where you really can't see a dentist at all in, in the United Kingdom. This is particularly in England. But it's even reaching into Newcastle, where we've got a dental school. And I was hearing this morning that even in a, in a city like Newcastle, there are problems about recruitment. So that is just simply you know, not acceptable. You've got 65% of children who haven't seen a dentist in the last two years. That's a really big problem. You've got the um, DIY bit, where people are actually doing something to their own teeth, or, as you've already mentioned, going to accident and emergency, which is bunging up uh, the hospital system. So that's another problem. And the other thing that gets overlooked from time to time, which is a massive issue, is the fact that the mouth is really a signal of so many different ailments that a person might have, including, of course, uh, mouth and throat cancer. So it's really important to enable dentists to see people more often. And the supreme irony is going for a dental checkup is usually an annual or a biannual activity. And therefore, the dentist is more likely to be um, uh, able to spot something like emerging cancer uh, than anyone else. Your report points to thousands of dentists in the UK leaving the profession and not being replaced. Why is this? Well, we've got two things happening. One is we've got a mixed economy in the United Kingdom where we've got the NHS provided uh, dentistry, which is about half, and then the private sector. So there's been a drift from NHS to private, and that's been all about the the disagreement over the existing contract. Dentists don't like the way in which UDA, that's a unit of dental activity, uh, is the payment system uh, for dentists. It's restrictive in terms of the kind of... uh, Uh, dentistry they can provide. It limits the professional judgment that they can have because they are basically corralled into the UDA system and that has meant there's a sort of feeling that well it's just not working here. Uh, I can do better in in the private sector by treating more patients in the way that I think they should be treated. That is the fundamental problem. The government has talked about reform but reform still has not happened. And then you've got the other problem of actually not enough dentists anyway. So um, there's there's effectively um, movement within the sector, but the sector is still needing more dentists. And your report highlights that this crisis in recruitment has actually been building up for some time. Why is that? Traditionally, the British uh, dental system has actually relied on people coming from abroad to become dentists. Um, And of course, that includes the European Union. 
and uh, he has been, you know, with Brexit, uh, that's been uh, obviously uh, damaged, that, that flow of people. In fact, it's going the, uh, the opposite direction. So that's added to the shortage of dentists. Our dental schools are capped uh, in terms of the number of students they can take on. It's almost like a perfect storm, aided and abetted by COVID. Many practitioners complain that the NHS is severely underfunded and that their contracts with the government don't cover the cost of providing treatment. Is this a fair assessment? Well, um, funding is certainly a, a, an issue. Um, about three billion is 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 uh, contributed via the NHS system towards dentistry. Um, and the, at the end of the day, that is not enough to provide a universal service. It's not enough to, to make sure that everybody can see an NHS dentist in the way that they want to. So there is a resource issue, absolutely. Um, but the contract issue is the one that we are really grappling with at the moment. So obviously more funding would help, but it sounds like the only way to really resolve this is to solve the recruitment crisis as soon as possible. Absolutely right. We say six to fix. We want to see more dentists coming through the dental school system. We want to uh, increase the access of dentists uh, from abroad. We also want to make sure that uh, dentists can operate more as a, as a sort of a team. Dentists are the ones who make all the decisions, but we want, we want to encourage hygienists and therapists and indeed dental nurses to effectively maximise their contribution uh, to the overall provision of dentistry. And I was speaking there to Neil Carmichael, the chair of the UK's Association of Dental Groups. People make history. So do great books and translations of great books. Martin Luther's German translation of the New Testament was revolutionary. For the first time, ordinary Christians could read the gospel themselves, cutting priests out of the loop. But Luther's translation didn't just undermine church hierarchy. It turned European culture and politics upside down, igniting over a century of bloody conflict. Out of the rubble, modern Europe would arise. And on the 500th anniversary of the publication of Luther's New Testament translation, David Kattenberg visited the castle where Luther created it and other spots on the historic Luther Trail. The bells of the old Nikolai church echo off cobblestones in Frankfurt, Germany. Martin Luther surely heard them ring as he passed through town back in the spring of 1521, heading down to the town of Worms. There, he would come face to face with the Holy Roman Emperor and refuse to apologize for his outrageous writings against the Catholic Church and its Pope. Here's where Martin Luther arrived. He came from Friedberg. He was coming this way. Jeff Myers is a retired pastor living in Frankfurt. For the past five years, he and other Lutherans have been celebrating the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's life and works. A Luther trail has been blazed, marking the reformer's 400-kilometer journey from where he lived in Wittenberg down to Worms. Every few hundred meters or so, there's a little sticker or a sign. So it's pretty hard to get lost along the Luther Trail. We're staying in front of one of those right now here on the Market Square, telling us we're on the right path. 
Midway along the trail, Luther stopped here at Wartburg Castle, above the town of Eisenach. The medieval fortress looks much the same as it did when Luther lived here. Martin Luther would spend 10 months at the Wartburg between May 1521 and March 1522, translating Christian scripture into German. The words he chose would change the world. On the right-hand side, you see um, 14 tracts he did at Wartburg Castle. Dorothee Menke is a researcher at Wartburg Castle. He'd like to change the Catholic Church. And, um, so these were political tracts that he wrote? It, it was theological. But aside from his New Testament? Aside he, from his New Testament, yes. there's 14 tracts and the New Testament, and he was working all the time. Luther had his work cut out for him. At least a dozen German Bibles had been published since Gutenberg's invention 60 years earlier, but they were bad translations of thousand-year-old Latin. So... Sitting in his room at Wartburg Castle, Luther crafted his own fresh version, based on the original Greek. He's laying down his uh, principles for translation. There he says, you have to talk like the woman in the house, like the children on the street, like the men in the market. He had a good feeling for language, for the German language. It was to be heard in church, and it's a very musical Language. Martin Luther's translation would form the basis of modern German. Within a decade, French and English translators would follow suit. For the first time in over a thousand years, ordinary Christians could read the gospel themselves in their own tongue rather than paying priests to read it for them. And this was, I think, the most striking thing. Thomas Kaufmann is a Luther scholar at the University of Göttingen, Kaufman has just published a critical edition of Luther's revised translation, the so-called December Testament. Now God has revealed and talked to the people. Now Christ is speaking to them by the New Testament. So it democratized. Yeah, in a certain sense, of course, yeah, it democratized. Luther's translation did more than just democratize Christian faith. It shattered the church entirely, sowing the seeds for what we take for granted today. Sovereign nation-states, the separation of state and church, freedom of faith, and the right to challenge authority, even public schooling. Indeed, the New Testament was a pillar of early modern education and, in a certain sense, even emancipation of people. And in many cases, it was the only book they had in the households. And they grew up by reading the holy text in the translation of Martin Luther. If Luther's translation inspired freedom, literacy, and political progress, other Luther writings inspired hate. His 1543 tract, On the Jews and Their Lies, called for synagogues to be burned. 400 years later, Luther's venomous words would be appropriated by the Nazis. The ones who really saw Luther as... Uh, as a national socialist, this extreme position did exist. Harold Storch is the retired dean of the Protestant church in the city of Worms. But 
there was also many who sort of uh, they did not think that that Luther was supporting the Nazis, but they would argue we shouldn't interfere in the political sphere, so to speak. But both sides turned to Luther for support. Both sides considered themselves as following Luther, so to speak. These days, Germans recall Luther's negative side while focusing on the positive in Worms, where Luther refused to recant five centuries ago. There is an exhibit called Here I Stand, Conscience and Protest, Generations of people who stood up for their ideals at huge cost are presented as walking in Luther's footsteps. Anti-Nazi partisan Sophie Scholl, Lutheran theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Martin Luther King Jr., and the German activist who brought down the Berlin Wall. Back in Frankfurt, Jeff Myers has been leading Lutherans along the reformers' high road. It's a wonderful time of reflection, and particularly for us on the historic Luther Trail, to recall those events and how they impact upon our lives and society today. And they do impact on lives and society today. Very much. We often ask people who are doing reflective walking tours with us on the Luther Trail, what am I standing for? Where do I want to courageously take my stand? Whether it's in my personal faith or at the place where I work, taking a firm stand as Luther did uh, 500 years ago. Jeff and I walked down the street where Luther's New Testament translation sold like hotcakes back in 1522. It was sold out very, very quickly and cost between one half and one and a half golden, which uh, I'm told is about the cost of a refrigerator today, to give you a sense of uh, how expensive it was back then, about the cost of a refrigerator to buy a, a small New Testament from Martin Luther. The book Martin Luther translated, Turning Europe Upside Down, is way cheaper today and available in over 1,500 languages a steady source of faith and inspiration for a billion Protestants all around the world. David Kattenberg, DW, on the Luther Trail. And I'm Nick Martin, and I'm here in Germany too. You're listening to Inside Europe. Finally this week to Sweden, where scientists are researching how to best harvest and expand a source of protein that is still rare and unusual in much of Europe, seaweed. Under the European Commission's Farm to Fork initiative, seaweed is supposed to become an important alternative to less sustainable protein sources like meat and soya. Not only is it a vitamin-packed sea vegetable, but it's also proving to be a lot more sustainable than other types of food we farm that require loads of land and fresh water. 
Richard Orange donned a dry suit and sped out to a Swedish seaweed farm on the edge of the Skagerrak Sea. We're now going to the um, sea farm, which is uh, located around 20 boat minutes offshore in the Costa Archipelago. So there we have our sea-based cultivation of the seaweeds and we have good weather today, so we do not expect much waves. There's not a cloud in the winter sky as our rib speeds past low granite islands on the way to the Costa Archipelago on Sweden's border with Norway. Marine biologist Sophie Steinhagen is taking me to the two hectare patch of water where the Cherno Marine Laboratory grows its sea lettuces. So, uh, straight ahead you can just see the buoys of the sea farm. It's around like a two hectare sea farm is a rope construction, more or less, with uh, anchors uh, to the ocean floor. Uh, so they keep them, keep the sea farm in place. Also, at winter when we have storms. Sophie pulls up a rope hanging with emerald green translucent algae, which she tears off with her hand. This is so-called sea lettuce. And they grow quite big, so they have around three more, or like two more months to go, and then they reach a size of up to 1 meter 20. On the protein angle, on, on increasing proteins, what, what have you done out here? Uh, it's the season that is important. And this is what we were able to show by one of our more recent studies, that especially spring conditions are very favorable if you aim for food production uh, with the seaweeds. With the beginning of uh, summer, you have more other organisms that, of course, settle on the seaweed surfaces. So when you buy a lettuce, you don't want to have a caterpillar in there. So the same is true for seaweed. Back at the red wooden buildings of the laboratory, Sophie explains why she is convinced that people in Europe will before long be eating a lot more seaweed as part of the protein shift away from meat. There is no other option. We are scarce in, in food. I mean, we do not realise this here in Europe, but in most parts of the world we, are, we have a food scarcity. So there, there is a need for new food sources. It's the same with, uh, like with soy or pea protein. Uh, it took a while until yeah, the normal people eat it, uh, but now you find it in every supermarket. So it's just a matter of time. UN figures show that global food insecurity has risen steadily since 2014. Nearly two and a half billion people did not have enough to eat in 2020, with the hunger concentrated in Africa and parts of Latin America. But efforts to increase food production are clashing with efforts to preserve important habitats. Steinhagen's role in finding a more sustainable alternative to meat is to try to boost the protein content of the sea lettuce, one of the most high-protein seaweed varieties. When we look for the protein content, we of course want to find strains which have a high growth rate and simultaneously a high protein content. And that on the one hand side can of course be done by uh, genetic selection or by strain selection, so usual horticulture methods. But of course uh, we can also select, for example, for different growth media, um, talking about nutrients, which could enrich the protein content. Sophie and her team selectively breed and clone sea lettuces and other edible algae in cylindrical tanks both in the greenhouse 
and inside a lab under artificial light. The outer margins become brownish and then they... But breeding high-protein seaweed varieties and learning how to maximise protein in cultivation is only half the puzzle. Two and a half hours south in the city of Gothenburg, a team at Chalmers University of Technology is looking at how best to extract protein from seaweed. My name is Ingrid Underland and I'm Professor of Food Science here at the Division of Food and Nutrition Science at Chalmers. And uh, I'm leading a marine research group here that works with all kinds of raw materials from the ocean and making sure it can be good, well-tasting and sustainable food products. What, what's the attraction of seaweed? What's, what's the reason for the, mm. for the interest from both the food industry and yeah. from yourself? Well, I think one big argument is that it's a very sustainable source of food. I mean, it doesn't compete with arable land and it makes even an environmental service with taking up nitrogen and phosphorus. The other is that it has very interesting flavor profile. From a flavor and, and, and color and everything perspective, they, people find it interesting right now. I would say it's trendy. Then, yeah, can it come in and be a protein source starting to compete with soy or pea, for example? then it could come in and replace some of those protein sources that are a bit less sustainable, maybe. The surge in soya consumption, mainly for animal feed, but also for the production of meat substitutes, has led to massive deforestation in important biodiversity hotspots, such as the Amazon rainforest. And more recently, it has led to a sharp expansion of agriculture in Brazil's Cerrado Savanna and worsened the country's acute water crisis. Peas appear to be more sustainable, but still take up agricultural land. I was curious, though, if this seaweed protein would look like the sort of soy mints you can buy in the supermarket now. Yeah, probably it looks like a, a powder. It would differ from soy and uh, pea and whey protein by the fact that it's probably more pigmented, because seaweed is, as you know, brown or green, even reddish. In addition, it probably has a little bit more marine flavor profile than the very, very neutral whey and soy. A neutral vanilla smoothie that doesn't taste anything, maybe it becomes challenging with the seaweed protein. But if you like to make a more, what do you say, savory product where you want some umami and saltiness and, and marine, this can be a great advantage. Zhao Trigo, one of Underland's PhD students, is grinding up some sea lettuce in a laboratory version of a food processor. It's been sent from Scherner Marine Laboratory. How optimistic are you just uh, at this stage that, that, pro that seaweed can become a major source of protein in, in food? I think it will be possible. We are, I would say, maybe 10 years from reaching that step. In his office, he has a test tube filled with the end result of the process he's just started. One teaspoon of green crystalline protein flakes. The process uses the same pH shift technology used to extract protein from soya. But because protein is evenly spread throughout the plant in seaweed and concentrated in beans in soya, it is much less efficient. This tiny amount took a whole sack of seaweed to make. Let's say that if we start with 10 kilos of um, fresh sea lettuce, that we might end up with around 20 grams of dried protein isolate. So that t tells you that we, are st we still have uh, a long way to go. 
In a kitchen close to the lab, I meet Pearly Teo, a third member of Ingrid's team, standing by a frying pan containing two minced herring patties marbled with green strands of algae. She is researching how seaweed could be used as an antioxidant to preserve fish. She is also the lab's in-house chef. My name is Pearly. I'm a master's student here at Chalmers and also with Gothenburg University. And what's your background? I used to be a chef and I also have a science degree and that's how I ended up here. Where were you working as a chef? I used to work at restaurant Raw at Post mm-hmm. Hotel mm-hmm. and also at Gastrologic in Stockholm. So quite high-end restaurants. Yes. <laughs> so this is the minced... Yeah, exactly. And it's really good quality for what you get. That's nice, actually. It's really nice. Thank you. In her home country of Singapore, Pearlie says, seaweed is already a food staple. Something like this would be kind of common. Like you have seaweed in some kind of mince in a fish ball, or even as just flakes on fries, like seaweed mm. flavor, because it's so much umami. Mm-hmm. So I think um, the McDonald's in Singapore at some point, they had this thing called shaker fries. And you basically open a, a sachet of seaweed flavor, you put it into your bag of fries and you shake it. But for seaweed to really make a significant contribution to Europe's sustainable food supply, it needs to make its way out of high-end restaurants and into the veggie burgers, sausages and frozen mints on sale in your local supermarket. For that to happen... Not only will the process need to get more efficient at every stage, but consumers will need to learn to appreciate that umami seaweed tang. Richard Orange in Gothenburg and Tjerno for DW. And that's about all we have time for this week. Don't forget, if you want to get in touch with us and give us any feedback about the reports you've heard, drop us a line to europe at dw.com. This programme was produced by Helen Sini and sound engineer Jan Winkleman. And I'm Nick Martin. Thanks for tuning in. Inside Europe comes to you from DW in Germany.